0: to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends, once again, as we welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, broadcast and heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers with connections to the Appalachian region and talking about how the region influences and impacts those works. I'm your host Elliot Parker. It is great to have you with us today and we're delighted to have a Kentucky Appalachian author with us today to talk to us about her new book and it is a good one. It's called Where I Can't Follow. It is a novel and our guest today is author Ashley Blooms and Ashley is a native of Kentucky. She received her MFA as a John Renee Grisham Fellow at the University of Mississippi. She's been awarded scholarships from the Clarion Writers Workshop as well as Appalachian Writers Workshop, and she's previously been published in the year's best dark fantasy and horror, fantasy and science fiction, and Strange Horizons, among others. Her debut novel, which also was a terrific book called Every Bone of Prayer, was praised by NPR, BuzzFeed, Good Housekeeping, Bustle, and many more. And so I'm so glad to welcome uh, to the program today our guest Ashley Blooms to talk to us about her new book, Where I Can't Follow. So Ashley, it is so nice uh, to have you with us and welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here.
0: I wanted to ask you first, before we get into the book, about something that you were involved in, which uh, I found was really neat and interesting. It's called the Book Bundle, which is done through uh, the Kentucky Book Festival. And you're a part of this book bundle with some really outstanding Appalachian authors. So I want to ask you, what, what is the book bundle? How did you get involved? And in kind of who are you sharing this uh, bundle of uh, uh, bundle of publicity and bundle of books with?
1: So, Uh, The book bundle is through the Kentucky Book Festival. Like you said, I think they started it just last year. So it's still kind of new, but it was really successful. And it's just an awesome way to kind of bring the book to life. So it's a subscription service uh, with four authors featured. So you'll get four little bundles throughout the year and you'll get a signed copy of the book, hopefully, or at least a book play in the book. Then you'll also get items from other Kentucky artists. So you may get postcard, bookmark, um, other little neat things, something from Kentucky soaps and such. So it's a way to kind of really uh, experience the book and other Kentucky artists through it. So it's just a really cool program. And I was so excited uh, to be invited to take part of it. It was actually Kim Michelle Richardson, who is the author of the book Woman of Troublesome Creek. And she has a new book, a sequel to that coming out in March. Um, the book woman's daughter, and she's part of the book bundle as well, and she had suggested um, my name. She's such a lovely Kentucky author. She's been so kind and sweet to me. We're both uh, published by Sourcebooks, and she's just been such a dear, uh, reaching out, trying to help me kind of along the way since my first book came out, so she kind of helped make this happen, and we, so along with Her there's also Lisa Cross Smith and then Silas House, books from both of them. Um, So I'm really excited. I can't wait to see sort of all the artists that are involved and, and all the little things that sort of get included with it. So it's just a really neat way to, you know, support the author, support the book festival, and to find new artists to love throughout Kentucky.
0: Absolutely, and you're in a list, a book bundle with some great authors. And if you haven't read Lisa Cross Smith or Silas House, so we've talked about them uh, many times on the program, sort of indirectly through other author interviews. Uh, they are terrific, and we would encourage you uh, to check out their books. And so, congratulations on this wonderful new book called "Where Can I Can't I Follow?" And or "Where I Can't Follow." There we go. Let me get that right. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the county in which this story takes place because I think it's so pivotal as to everything that your characters experience uh, in the story. And the place is called Black Damp County, Kentucky. Give us a little insight and some perspective onto what is, where is Black Damp County, Kentucky in terms of what's there, what's life like for the people in your book uh, and how that region and that county kind of influences what happens to your characters.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Black Damp County is a fictional county in Kentucky but it's definitely sort of an amalgam of where I grew up. So I grew up in Leslie County, Kentucky, and it was definitely a lot on my mind as I was envisioning Black Damp. Um, so it's a small coal mine in town. That's gonna be the, the main industry there and sort of full of generational coal miners. Um, not too much going on in the town. There's a high school, like a Dollar Tree, <laughs> you know, little things like that. Um, but it's not a place that has a ton of economic opportunity. And it's not a place that, um, yeah, that offers a lot of options to the people who are there. And some of those options like coal mining are sort of slowly uh, disappearing and sort of being ushered out, but not really replaced by anything. So not as many new um, chances coming in. And so the characters in the book are sort of navigating what it is to be in this place that you love and that feels very much a part of who you are and who you've always been, you know, generationally. But it's not a place that really gives you a lot of options for staying and building a life. Um, So how to kind of, yeah, how to be where you want to be and and have what you want to have. Um, And it's also a place that's really been affected by the opioid epidemic, which is something that's definitely all throughout Southeastern Kentucky and many other places, but it's something that, you know, I have seen greatly impact the places where I grew up and sort of spent most of my life. And so it's something that's definitely a part of the book as well. Um, And again, you know, how, I think one of the things that was, was really on my mind was what happens when you feel like you don't have choices, when you feel like you don't have the autonomy to alter your life. And so things like addiction, really begin to step in and kind of fill that gap. Um, And hopefully to kind of write about that and that experience of struggling economically, struggling in a place that you love, but don't quite fit in struggling, you know, with the memories of people that you have lost. Um, You know, hopefully that's done in an empathetic way.
0: Very good. And you talked about choices and and people in your county feeling like sometimes they, they have no other options. One of the things I love about this book and also loved about Every Bone of Prayer, your first novel is there's a little bit of magical realism that kind of works its way into the story. And in this particular book, it comes in the way of a door. That has kind of appeared to generations of people that have lived and occupied Black Damp County in Kentucky. And basically what the what the door does is it serves as a way for uh, people can can see it they can walk through it if they wish. Um, but we we don't necessarily, you know, they don't necessarily know what happens uh, kind of on the other side. You know, it's sort of like, um, I I reminded me of, 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 you know, the game show, Let's Make a Deal. You know, you don't know what's behind the curtain. It might be something you really want to see and really would like, or it might be something that you realize, oh, I'm better off where I am. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about working that into your story, and if you feel like that uh, growing up in Appalachian, being a part of, of Appalachian culture, that, you know, we grow up with 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 folk stories, and we grow up with ghost stories, and urban legends, if, if that made it easy to kind of work this element into your story, because those things are so much a part of our Appalachian culture and upbringing, those of us from Appalachia.
1: Yes, um, I think that definitely, is a big part of why I turned toward genre elements. Um, you know, I grew up hearing all kinds of legends and folk stories and family history that was sort of um, often like little bits and pieces, you know, so it would be like the beginning of a story or the climax of a story, but there would be, a, you know, the why did that happen? How exactly did that happen? There would be these gaps that weren't completely filled in, um, which seemed like, incredible invitation for someone to fill those in you know especially with imagination and so you know and we heard just ghost stories that there was always something you know and was often treated um, sort of given the same credence as like a, a story that was sort of factually accurate you know so there would be lots of superstitions and things like that and they would all kind of be told all together so there was already this blurring between um, reality in the supernatural or, or, you know, this possibility of something more or different happening. Um, so the doors felt like a really natural extension, you know, and always writing anything magical or strange or supernatural set in Kentucky feels very natural to me, you know, cause I, when I think of it, I think of it as a very magical place, a very liminal space, you know, that is, um, that kind of welcomes all that in. And it's always, a joy for me to kind of share that perspective because I don't know that other people think of Kentucky in that way. So it's always uh, exciting for me to, to kind of um, broaden that (laughs) for others and let them see, you know, the way that I see my home. And so the doors in Black Dap County um, really felt like a natural extension of the place and what these people were experiencing, you know, so much of the sort of thematic considerations of the book was about autonomy and choice and, you know, what happens when we don't feel like we have that, but also sort of the balance between individual choice and community choice. So, you know, what's best for me as a person versus what is gonna be best for my family or best for my community and how to sort of navigate the tensions between those, those sources, because, you know, it's not always possible to satisfy all of those needs at once. And then kind of what happens when that is the case. And yeah, so the doors felt like a really perfect way, you know, portal story felt like the, the perfect kind of thing to use to explore that.
0: And I love how you simply but poignantly describe the doors. And, and at one point you have a sentence that says the doors found the hurt, the lonely, the poorest and the most desperate. And I think about the people in Black Damp County and three of the characters we're going to talk about here in just a minute fall into one, two, three, maybe four of those different Uh, uh, situations to where maybe they would want to step through that door and possibly change things for themselves. But your story centers on uh, a fantastic character named uh, Marin Walker, who is grieving the death of her mother while also caring for her grandmother, who she calls Granny, who is suffering from dementia. But I wanted to talk about, before we kind of pull the, her apart or, and, and who she interacts with, there, there's a great relationship that she has with um, uh, a girl uh, named Julie, who who is mentally unwell or, or mentally ill. Um, and also her on-again, off-again love interest, Carver, who just happens, so happens to be Julie's older brother and also kind of has his own checkered past. And I, I found a quote that I wanted to read and just have you kind of tell us a little bit about... Uh, these three and kind of the relationship that they have. And and I loved it. I was looking for a quote that kind of summed up their relationship. And I found it on page 128. And it's a a moment where Maren is sort of standing on the on the porch and she says, I stood on the porch with my little door at my shoulder. Julie murmured something to Carver and Carver mumbled back. When we were little, I used to feel left out of the space between them. No matter how close Julie and I became, she and Carver still shared things I had no part in a family, a home. I felt it again, that old twang of jealousy and sadness and fog curled around that loneliness like it was the sweetest feeling in all the world, the only feeling we could trust. And I felt like that that paragraph there really describes... Julie's relationship with Maren, Marin's relationship with Julie, Marin's relationship to Carver and everything in between. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the dynamics that are going on there because they all are kind of wounded and, and have had a past that have not been great and they're dealing with realities that are complicated but yet uh, they all three kind of circle the same orbit and it's it's almost like they, they can't live with each other sometimes but can't live without each other. Can you talk about the sort of the dynamics at work between those three?
1: Yeah um I think you summed it up very well um they they sort of feel like misfits i think you know they have never really fit anywhere else but they kind of fell in with each other at a pretty young age and no matter what differences they had or what else was going on you know they were always there for each other so they had this sort of bond of friendship and of understanding that kind of kept them together um but they're also growing up and changing you know they're all in their 20s and they're becoming different people and i think one of the the central tensions in their relationships is sort of how do you let someone that you love and feel like you know really well how do you let them change how do you let them grow and become someone else how do you deal with the fear that maybe they'll grow away from you or grow into something that you don't recognize and you know how do you let people change so you know Marion has a lot of uh distrust with Carver because of things that have happened in their past. You know, he left kind of abruptly and and wasn't really communicative. And we kind of find out why and sort of begin to understand um why he it was so difficult for him to reach back out. But that's something that, you know, she holds on to is that he left and that she can't trust him. And that's, you know, a wound that she carries. And part of their relationship is her being able to see that he's different now and allowing him to be different and not hold him to an old standard. And you can see the same thing with Marion and Julie, you know, she has, Julie has um, dealt with mental illness and bipolar disorder she has a suicide, attempted suicide in the past which is something that really bothers Marion, considering that her mother left through her own little door when Marion was nine and so Maren has this real fear of abandonment so she can I think kind of hold on a little too tightly and hold standards just a little too high for the people around her from that fear and so with Julie you know Julie's trying to I think stand on her own and in a way that she hasn't, she's kind of, her her grandmother, and Maren, and other people in her life have made a lot of choices for her, and she's kind of gone along with it, but she wants to break out of that, she wants to be seen as a competent adult, you know, and not just seen for the mental illness, and what it's done to her life, and so that's the tension with her and Maren, is, you know, Maren has to learn how to trust Julie, and let Julie be her own person, how to trust Carver, and, and they all have to kind of navigate that together and you know they're very open with each other which is you know something I appreciate they'll call each other out on their shit (laughs) and let each other know when you know they've stepped across a line and they're messy and um, a little all over the place sometimes but they they just keep trying to work it out and they keep trying to find a way back to each other
0: Yeah, very well said. And we talked about the doors a few minutes ago about that being sort of the the magical realism there. And we find as we go through the novel that Marin finds her own door and she kind of steps through it. And that is she wants to learn about why her mother left uh, and, and what happened, the circumstances surrounding that. What does Marin kind of find out when she steps through that door? We talked a moment ago about how sometimes these characters in this in this book and in this county step through the door and they don't like what they see on the other side when when Marin steps through her door and kind of looks to find out what about what about her mother and why she left? Well, what are some things that she discovers there?
1: Yeah, so um in order to take care of her grandmother who is dealing with dementia and has um some other health problems, Marin starts to sell the prescription pills that her grandmother doesn't take. And in doing so, that ends up bringing her closer to people who knew her mother, who was an an addict. She struggled with alcoholism. And so she ends up sort of learning out, learning more about her mother than she would have ever anticipated just by being in the same circles that her mother was in when she was uh, still in Black Damp. And it's something Marin didn't really expect to find, but you know, in her family after her mother Nell took her door, they kind of stopped talking about her. She's not someone who gets mentioned or brought up. So Marin never really, you know, felt like she got to grieve her mother or even to know her mother. And that's just a really big absence in her life. So as she starts to sell pills and meet people that she normally would not have met and sort of see a different side of life than she has lived up until that point, she starts to understand her mother a lot more. I think Nell kind of occupied this place where she could have been anything, you know, because she left when Marion was so young, then she could have been any person that Marion needed, and so Marin got to kind of create this vision of her, and that vision gets challenged in some ways, you know, and because Nell is a complicated person. She made some really rough choices, you know, especially as a, a mother to Marin. and I think ultimately Marin sees sort of the similarities between them and how she her life is not that different from her mother's and she comes to have a lot of empathy for her mom and to see that you know what separates them what makes Marin different what makes Marin capable of making different choices and having a different life it isn't really about willpower or Marin being stronger or anything like that. It's Marin had a few more options. She had a little bit more support. She had just a little bit more sort of underneath there to help her make a different life for herself. And that was definitely. Something really important for me, you know, as a child of addicts, to sort of not fall into those old stories about, you know, addicts being inherently selfish and weak or, you know, that it's a character flaw. Because those are things that I just don't believe because I've not seen that (laughs) in my own life. You know, I've seen that addiction is an incredible struggle and that in a way it is an attempt to survive, it's an attempt to make what feels unbearable bearable for a while. And so having Maren kind of understand that and see her mother just as a person, not necessarily as her mother and as all that she expected her to be, but just as a woman who was struggling to get by and to be able to have a little bit of closure, but also to still see her as strong and valuable and unique and interesting and sweet and all these other things that Nell was um, was really important.
0: Our guest on this episode of Now Appalachia is Ashley Blooms. Her new book is called Where I Can't Follow, and Ashley will come back uh, to the book uh, in just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to ask you first about some authors that influence you and inspire you, and maybe that you find yourself going back to 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 look at for ideas or that you kind of pattern your writing after. Who who are some of those writers?
1: Yeah, um... There are a lot. Um, I really love Louise Erdrich and her work, um, basically anything that she does, I just adore it. She has a really wonderful way of working with time, especially in non-linear time and sort of generational stories that I'm really drawn to. Uh, Marilyn Robinson, I really love. Um, Silas House obviously was a big influence growing up, especially um, seeing an Appalachian writer and seeing our stories. Um, in that way, was just really important, and really influential for me, oh goodness, trying to think, Kelly Link is another author, that I really love, Um, her work is just spectacular, everything she does, yeah, every time someone asks me about writers, my mind automatically blanks,
0: (laughs) I understand, well, and it's one of those things, too, I I know you're a voracious reader, and it just, I, I feel this way, too, that you know, uh, just when I get done reading a, a new book by an author that I love, I discover a new book by a new author that I didn't really know. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm engrossed in their writing as well. So totally understand one blank on on, on that question for sure. Um, I want to ask you a, a question about your your process as, as a writer. How do you write? When do you write? How long does it take you from idea conception to getting a first draft done? What's that process like for you as a writer?
1: Yeah. Um... So it varies. I think my process has grown and changed um, as I've worked through every bone of prayer and where I can't follow the process between the two of them was pretty different. I think, you know, with every bone of prayer, I didn't really do an outline. I just kind of started writing and just sort of thought of it as sort of running to the end point, you know, just crossing the finish line to get the draft. Whereas with that, where I can't follow, um, I was on deadline. So I had to do a little bit more planning beforehand. So I did, you know, actually plot the book, I had it up on the wall with multicolored, um, like sticky notes and cards to kind of keep track of all the threads in the book and see how it was coming together, which is something I've adopted moving forward. So I have a kind of Flexible outlining process, I like to think, you know, it's not super rigid or super detailed, but I do like to have a bit of a blueprint going in, especially when I think about um, the themes that I'm working with, the images, the sort of recurring imagery that I want to use. It um, kind of helps give me, yeah, sort of a blueprint to follow. So I've used, I tend to use some kind of outlining Um But that's, it always ends up changing, you know, and I like, I like that, you know, when, when it starts to sort of move and become its own creature. So I find that being adaptable and flexible is also really important. Um, I think for Every Bone of Prayer, between the first draft and its publication, it was about four or five year process. You know, and where I can't follow, I had had the idea for a long time and had drafted it once already. And when we decided to sort of move ahead with it for my second book, um, the drafting process because of that was a little cleaner than normal since I already sort of knew the world and the characters. And so the the second draft was a lot closer to what I wanted it to be, but we still went through edits and revisions and reworked some things. So it was still, you know, a year and a half, two year process. So it it differs between each book. Um, I'm always learning something (laughs) from the books that I write and trying to, yeah, help update my process as I go.
0: Excellent, very good. We're speaking with author Ashley Blooms about her new book, Where I Can't Follow. It is the follow-up to her other outstanding book. If you haven't read it yet, it's called Every Bone of Prayer, which I would encourage you to check out as well. And um, Ashley, as we go back to the book for a minute, you touched on this a few minutes ago, but I wanted to come back to it. Carver and Marin's relationship. And I was reading that and I was reading it again this morning as we were preparing for our interview today. And I was thinking about kind of the space that those two occupy. And it reminds me of um, the early years of adulthood that we have all gone through where uh, you're trying to figure yourself out who you are, but you're also trying to figure out what you're looking for in a relationship and trying to figure out um, how that's going to work and how that, that, that partner is going to work potentially and how you two are going to kind of navigate that period in life together. Um, and, and I just, I just love that. I found a lot of their interactions to be, to be really sweet and tender, even though, you know, Marin is going through that process, as you mentioned earlier, of trying to trust uh, not only Julie, but, but Carver as well. And and I was wondering if you could speak a little more about, about their relationship and kind of the pirouette they do with each other. Um, and, and and they have some moments where they do disagree, but it just seems like there's so many, when you read their conversations, it, it's just a lot of uh, kind of talking past each other and trying to set, size each other up. I was wondering if you could give some comment and thought to that or some perspective on that uh, as their relationship unfolds in the book.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you're Absolutely right. There is a lot of talking past each other, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of, and I think that comes from that idea they have of each other in their heads. You know, they think they know each other. They think they understand. They think they have it all figured out. I think especially Marin. you know, she's got Carver lined up. She knows who he is and she knows what to expect, but that's not the whole of him. And that's not really considering what he's been through while they've been apart or who he wants to be now. And so she has this way of both seeing the very best of him and really pushing him to go for the things that he wants and believe in himself, but also at the same time, doubting him and not exactly trusting or believing him. So it's, you know, there's a lot of back and forth, I think internally for both of them. Um, And they are in that very sort of difficult, tumultuous period where they, they don't really know what they want exactly. And they don't know how to get it, even if they do know what they want. And so they're kind of, trying to work through that and make room for each other, you know, and make space for each other to be part of that and to encourage each other to to go after what they want and what they love, Um, but still arguing. And I mean, they fuss and they fight and they disagree. And, but I think that's, I think how we learn to argue with each other is one of the most important parts of a long-term relationship is learning how to to fight respectfully and how to still be on the same side, even when you disagree, which is something they definitely are working on (laughs) the book. And so they are, they're just kind of in this, this really tumultuous time and they, they cling to each other and they push each other away and they kind of go back and forth. But I think ultimately they, they just really love and believe in each other. I think at their core, it's just kind of hard to make that work.
0: Yeah, very well said. So in our final minutes with you today, Ashley, if uh, anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about writing, talk to you about your books, uh, how can they do that? Where can they find you out in uh, cyberspace and uh, in the World Wide Web? And then where can they get copies of Where I Can't Follow or your first book, Every Bone of Prayer?
1: Yeah, so I have a website, ashleyblooms.com, and there's a contact form on there, uh, which y'all are more than welcome to use to reach out. Um, I'm also on Instagram and on Facebook. I have an author page on Facebook under the same name, Ashley Blooms. Uh, so you should be able to find me there. And those are linked on my website too. And you can get copies of Every Bone a Prayer and where I can't follow wherever books are sold. I always recommend local bookstores, um, either ordering them from there or picking up a copy from your local indie. Um, that's always my favorite.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, So, same here, same here. We've been delighted to be speaking today with author Ashley Blooms. She is the author of Every Bone of Prayer, which was long listed for the Crook's Corner Book Prize and which NPR said is bears within its pages, striking beauty and strangeness in equal measure. And we've been talking to her today about her second novel called Where I Can't Follow. It is a terrific story about uh, three characters who are going through uh, so much. As they try to navigate life in rural Black Damp County, Kentucky, there's a little bit of of magical realism as well, but uh, this book takes on uh, so many great and important themes uh, about mental illness, about addiction, about looking for life outside of your current circumstances. So Ashley, it's a terrific book. Congratulations on it. We're so happy for you and uh, glad that you brought this important, great work uh, into uh, our literary universe. And thanks so much for the conversation today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out and a thank you to the executive producer of Now Appalachia. She's also the executive producer of all of the podcasts and programs you hear on the authors on the air global radio network. Her name is Pam stack. We appreciate all the work that she does uh, to make these podcasts possible and make them available for you to check out each and every time uh, here on now Appalachia and across the network. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the air global radio network. Well, that's going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.